and started. Okay. Well, uh, thank you, Sheila, for the opportunity to, to share a little bit on the topic of poultry litter management. Uh, uh, I'm going to put into the chat box uh, a copy or a, a link to my slides and a link to a two-page handout for today. So if we're interested in those, grab those out of the chat box right now. Um, I've been asked to uh, share some thoughts uh, on the topic of poultry litter management. Uh, I'll primarily do it from a, uh, a agronomic uh, or integration of the litter into a, into a land application program and some of the issues that we need to consider. I had in mind of, uh, addressing five questions here. Today. I'm not sure we're going to get to all of them. Uh, with the time that we have, but uh, we'll see how this proceeds. And you have access to the slides that kind of detail maybe the couple that I don't make if it ends up being that way. But how is the litter managed? We'll just give you a little bit of a visual appearance there. How much land is needed for managing the NMP of a broiler house? Uh, how do you integrate this into a fertility plan in terms of some rates that we might think in terms of recommending? Uh, what fields will benefit the most? Uh, and then how do I plan litter application to avoid neighbor nuisance would be the five topics. And Rick, if you're doing that last one, when you do odor, maybe I could skip that one in particular. So when I get there, I may ask you what you think. All right, uh, just to give you a quick overview, I don't have the best of slide sets uh, in terms of uh, poultry litter. Uh, Amy helped me out with a couple and I found some from some friends here over the weekend. But this is a, a, one of the new facilities. Uh, this, is, I think, is the grandparent facility. The, the, the grandparents of the chicks that will be going through the broiler operations will be raised here. Uh, but it gives you an idea of what these facilities look like indoors. Uh, the base of these house has a floor that, a clay floor, and then on top of that, typically we will add about four to six inches of finely ground wood shavings or sawdust, I guess is maybe even a, a better term, but it's pretty fine material. And this base will be used for approximately six, growing out six additional blocks. And we'll talk more about that with some of these pictures. So after you get the, the litter or the, the uh, sawdust base, you grow out a, a group of birds over a period of time. I think Costco is talking in terms of growing these animals to six pounds roughly over a 44-day period, and then following with about a two-week down period between that and the next group of birds. Uh, the litter that you're having coming, uh, resulting from that is a, a mix of, of the wood chips, and, uh, excrement of the animals, uh, feathers. It's a fairly dry material. Uh, typically, the, the average material that's coming out of here is about 70% dry matter or 30% moisture. Now there are areas within this the barns underneath the waters and feeders and uh, along the area where the evaporative pans are that the litter can be higher. And Amy created this little drawing for me that kind of showed the length of the barn. And in certain areas, you'll see an area of, of higher moisture litter. And it's common that between flocks, they will try to rake up and harvest some of that higher moisture litter, try to also break it up so that it dries out. But there is some harvesting between 
individual flocks. That's often referred to as a cake material. But much of the material is going to be recycled and, and reused for the next flock. So they'll come in with equipment such as this and pull that uh, litter to a, a central place in the barn, creating a windrow, and they will attempt to compost that material. Uh, now, I've not been around these barns uh, during that composting yet. If that material is really only 30% uh, moisture, it's probably on the dry side compost. There might be some heating, but my guess is it's not a, a true compost process. Amy, you have any experience there you want to share? Yeah, I think you probably saw me unmute there. Um, I will tell you that down in Mississippi, when we did the work with windrowing, um, we did, you know, kind of uh, windrow sections in a controlled environment, and that, that litter came in at around 22% moisture, and we did reach uh, 40 degrees C over about 85% of that pile for seven days. Okay. And we did reach 50 over... We got 50 degrees for the um, like 24 hour was our target, and we got 55 degrees in just the core of it. So it got pretty okay, pretty hot for as dry as it was. Sure. Okay. Well, that's that's good to hear because we would like to see those higher temperatures because that will help uh, reduce some of the pathogen load that uh, could be in that manure before the next flock comes in. So at, that will be windrowed uh, and composted for a week's period or so, and then uh, leveled out. And we'll then, uh, after we've done that approximately six times, uh, uh, Lincoln Premium Poultry is talking about doing that process six times, and then once a year, hauling out all of the litter from the barns. Most likely will be stockpiled, I would think, temporarily on a local crop field in the vicinity of where it's going to be land applied, and then we'll use equipment such as this uh, for land applying it, uh, spreaders that uh, have a, a side discharge or flail to them, spread it out over a, a larger pattern, a little bit different than what we see with our feedlot manures. Uh, so that's pretty much the process of uh, uh, managing that litter. Uh, once a year, we'll have a barn that needs to be cleaned out in that litter, a home for that litter found uh, in nearby cropland. Uh, the second question I proposed is how much land is needed to, to manage these nutrients? Uh, I Reviewing the literature from a variety of places, talking with some of the folks, uh, in my colleagues down in Georgia, uh, litter production in the range of about 1.3 to 1.2 five tons per thousand birds per year, uh, assuming that we're pulling this out on an annual basis, uh, would be about where we would expect this would be the litter and the cake production combined is what I'm told. Uh, it would amount to roughly 90 pounds of nitrogen, 70 pounds of phosphate, that we, phosphate equivalent that we would pull out of these barns uh, on a per thousand bird per your basis. And if you look over here at the red box, it gives you some idea of the land required for managing those nutrients. We're putting it into continuous corn and applying just to meet the nitrogen requirement of the crop. We'd only need between about 40 uh, acres per four houses, so about 10 acres per house. 
for meeting the needs if we were to just apply it on a phosphorus utilization basis. We're talking about 45 uh, acres per house or 180 uh, for the four house system. And it might be just a little bit higher if we're in a, a corn soybean rotation, but not a big difference at all. So that's an idea of the land base. It's not going to be a large land base. It's many of these farms we're probably dealing with, the land base will be within the farm that uh, also manages these buildings. So they're applying it on their own land rather than trying to, to uh, find neighbors that need to utilize this. Uh, when we begin thinking in terms of integrating into the, our, our fertility plan, just a quick reminder of what our goal is, we're, we're trying to balance various nutrient sources entering that uh, crop with what the crop is going to remove. Uh, or nitrogen, we'll balance that on an annual basis. Uh, in most cases, we'll probably be over-applying phosphorus and then over a three to five year period, we would not return to that same field preferably and uh, utilize that phosphorus. And that will depend upon how much litter we provide or apply in any one year. So that would be kind of the intended goal. Let's try to put some numbers on this here. Uh, one thing that we do need to know uh, for this is the composition of that manures, that litter's uh, nutrient content, and I'll just pull out the broiler litter numbers. Uh, and you can see there's a fair amount of nitrogen. Most of that nitrogen is in an organic nitrogen form, so it's a slow-release nitrogen. Uh, small parts in ammonium, and we probably won't be able to take advantage of that ammonium form unless we incorporate it, that manure, within you know 24 hours or less after its application. And my guess in most cases, we won't be incorporating that litter. Uh, there's also a fair amount of phosphorus and potassium and a, a number of micronutrients that you can see in the table below. Of course, there's a lot of variability in this litter. Uh, there was a study, I think, a slide I didn't show uh, from Kansas that showed the degree of variability they were experiencing in one location. So you're always going to need your own manure sample for doing that final estimate of application rates. But we'll use these numbers as a starting point today to give you some ballpark ideas where we should be. Uh, we have procedures in NEB guides. This is a, a NEB guide 1335. Many of you have used this before. It has a procedure in there for estimating the availability of nitrogen in the manure. And uh, here's some numbers that we may be pulling out, probably not incorporating, so not expecting to get much out of the ammonium nitrogen over here. Uh, from the organic nitrogen here on the uh, Right-hand side, you would expect about 30% of that uh, nitrogen to become available in the future, first year, and then some additional nitrogen, say 15% the following year, and uh, declining after that. I've noticed that the values that are used in many of the southern states are up near 50% availability that first year. My guess is that longer warm season that they have allows more of that nitrogen to become available. Uh, during the growing season. Uh, compared this, these numbers with some research that was done recently at Iowa State and uh, poultry litter and 
our 30% availability factors match up well with what they were seeing. So feel good still about those numbers that we have in that NEB guide. So we take that, uh, that sample and those availability factors and we can begin to estimate a manure application rate. We did it on a nitrogen rate. We would apply about 10 ton of litter per acre to meet the nitrogen need of a 200 bushel corn crop. And in doing so, we would way over apply the phosphorus. We'd have a, a, a nine year supply of phosphorus uh, available, probably higher than what we'd want uh, potential for runoff risk from that field carrying a fair amount of phosphorus with. Uh, if we are applied to meet 50% of that nitrogen, well, it'd be roughly half, or just to meet the P, uh, it would be about 1.2 tons of litter per acre. And in the end, I'm guessing we're going to be somewhere between that, those latter two values, some compromise of those. I think if we can apply at a, to meet about half of that nitrogen, we'd have about four years of phosphorus. And so we would just try to get on a, a cycle that every four years we would return to that same field. This might work in most fields, except for where we have a high erosion and runoff risk. And then we might think in terms of something closer to a P-based rate, possibly even a P-based rate that we incorporate. There are, in that NEB guide I mentioned before, there are procedures in that NEB guide for calculating that out on an individual analysis basis. So if you sit down with a, a farmer to try to make a, a nutrient plan, uh, get an analysis, uh, that procedure in that NEB guide will help you guide you through that calculation process. Okay. Third question I thought I would ask would be around the issue of what fields are going to benefit the most from that poultry litter. And I think we really want to talk with farmers about looking at the fields around their property or possibly at neighbors and deciding which fields are they going to get the most value out of this manure. And uh, so let's just walk through it from first, maybe from more of a fertility perspective. And what I've done here is put an estimate on the value of that litter. And I've done a lower estimate and a higher estimate. The low estimate doesn't give any value to the potassium or to a yield increase, and the higher estimate does. So I'd say that probably is going to bracket the, the value of our poultry litter. Um, and if you look at what the source of the value is in these two diagrams, you can see it's the phosphorus that we really need to utilize if we're going to get the value out of this manure. And if we're considering there's a value in the potassium, the fields that we select, it's the phosphorus and the potassium. The nitrogen is a rather small part of it. The yield increase would likely be a relatively small part of it, as well as the micronutrients. So we're really after those fields that can utilize that P and that K and the ones that we'd like to target first. We also need to consider cost of transporting this. Like I said, I'm guessing many of these farms won't be going long distances. I'm guessing there'll be a land base close by many of these barns that can manage this. But if we have to go some distance, uh, this will give you some idea how far we could potentially transport. This is some numbers that uh, Sechi Agri Services has shared with us. 
Uh, transportation distance is one driving factor for estimating the transportation costs. And I, I just showed a, a situation of transporting at 20 miles. The cost was $6 to haul at that 20 miles. And then the application cost would be another one we would consider. And let's say we were applying at five ton per acre. We'd add another $9 per ton. So a total between these two, uh, 15, around $15 a ton. If you remember the previous slide, we were dealing with something that had a value of somewhere in the $30 to $60 a ton basis. So we can afford to transport this in fairly significant distances. Of course, if we can apply it close to home, we reduce that, some of that transportation cost. All right, so what fields are the wind from a fertility perspective? Now, I, I would start by looking at fields that need phosphorus, those that are lower in their phosphorus, and I'm guessing we'll have a, a lot of the farms that uh, uh, where these poultry houses are being added to that have low phosphorus fields nearby. Uh, we might think in terms of crops that benefit from a higher soil P level, such as wheat. Might also think in terms of crops that uptake a higher level of phosphorus, such as corn silage or irrigated alfalfa being a couple of examples. I think we'll be thinking in terms of applying manure one year and then delaying our return to that field until we see that soil phosphorus level drop down close to that 20 part per million range. And that would be one way of getting the greatest value out of that litter. Some other things to consider are just fields that need potassium would be my next place I would look. And then my last place would be making sure we try to credit some of that nitrogen that's in that uh, litter uh, to the nitrogen needs of that crop. So applying ahead of a non-legume crop as an example. I would also encourage us to think about the organic value of that manure and target fields that would benefit the most from that. Uh, there is value uh, of that organic matter in that litter, uh, both short-term and short-term benefits that we can see, and then some longer terms from slowly building uh, organic uh, matter in the soil. But I, I think it's really those short-term benefits that we're after. Uh, manure provides an excellent, excellent energy source for the soil microbial activity. After manure application, we see an explosion of that soil microbial activity. And that leads to a number of benefits, uh, such as improved aggregation of the soil and lower erosion, lower runoff, and a, and a better cycling of nutrients. So a number of things that benefit from that uh, increased microbial activity in the soil. Uh, I'm not gonna go into any detail of that. This study would point you to two publications that will show up in that handout. Uh, one is a, a, a Michigan State publication, really nice summary of the benefits of manure to soil organisms and to soil quality. And I think it's an excellent read. Over the last two years, we've also created a web blog that has about 15 plus articles on manure's value to uh, soil quality. And it provides, I think, a pretty good summary of some of the research that, that we have access to. So, gives you some additional detail that you might be interested in. Uh, so in terms of fields that would benefit the most, here's kind of my list. I think 
the benefit is going to be greatest for our finer texture soils, uh, those that tend to crust over, those that have been uh, experienced some tillage in the past and to a lower organic matter. I've also had farmers that use manure regularly that say they like to target fields that commonly experience ponding or ground out spots. And by using manure in those fields, they say those spots will uh, disappear within a year or two of after application. So some examples of fields that will gain value out of the manure from an organic value basis. Okay, uh, I was gonna talk a little bit about odor, but uh, time's running out. Uh, Sheila, would you like me to wrap this up or should I make a comment or two here? You're on mute, Sheila. Go ahead, go ahead and talk, keep talking. Uh, Rick, was this a topic you were going to address from a land application perspective, Rick Stoll? Go ahead and cover this, uh, Rick. I will address some other things. Okay. Uh, I'm going to point you to uh, manure.unl.edu uh, web article that we written recently on how do you plan your application of manure to avoid neighbor nuisances. Uh, you know, we've talked about the value of manure, but we also have to recognize there's a, a side to manure that uh, our neighbors don't often appreciate, and odor is probably the biggest concern among those. And if we can deal with the odor issue, give some thought and planning of how to avoid those odors for the neighbor from the land application perspective, uh, I think you'll find communities a, a lot more accepting of, of this product. Uh, I'll start with this graphic or this table, and this shows you the atmospheric conditions that where the risk of holding odors near the ground is the highest. And you and I are pro many of you have probably seen this occurring right now. Uh, uh, fall days as we're harvesting soybeans, and you notice in the evening that plume of dust that just sets right near the ground and really concentrates. Last night, I drove through one of those clouds out here west of Lincoln, and it, I had to slow down and wonder what it was up ahead of me because you just couldn't see that dust had concentrated so much at the ground level. The reason for that was it was evening conditions, wind speeds were low, and uh, the air was cooling, uh, not much cloud cover, and so that is our high-risk conditions, whether it be that soybean dust or the odors from the litter. So these are the high-risk conditions, and we will see those risk conditions extend up to maybe a range of 10 miles per hour. But it's those nighttime conditions, low wind speeds are really the ones that we worry about. And as you recall, if you've seen those plumes of smoke or dust that stay near the ground, they stay pretty much together. They don't spread laterally. They kind of go in that direction that the breeze is taking so with that information, we can uh, take a look at a weather forecast for the next 48 hours or so and make a good prediction as to are we going to have a problem? And if so, what fields might we select? So I like to get a weather forecast that has wind speed, wind direction, and temperature or sky conditions, one of the two. 
handy at the same time. And I'm looking for those lower wind conditions, primarily at the nighttime when temperature is dropping. And using those values in that previous table, and I can identify those red areas, those high-risk areas, that like that soybean dust plume, those odors will stay concentrated near the ground and potentially uh, cause a neighbor uh, an issue. So if I were to apply manure on this day right here, uh, I've got that evening some conditions that are going to cause problems for neighbors to the northwest or north of my property. So I'd like to select a field that there are no neighbors to the north and northwest if I'm going to apply on that day. If I'm uh, looking at this, this next day, I've got a good day, uh, early uh, 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 weather conditions that will cause that odor to disperse. I will have gone, if I'd applied it on this day here where it shows low odor risk, I have a couple of days of drying time to dry out that litter. And the drier the litter, the less of the odor we're going to have. And so by the time we need to reach this period of a, a next risky condition here, uh, a lot of that odor plume should have disappeared from that uh, application of the litter. So with these three pieces of information uh, and looking out 48 hours, 72 hours in advance, uh, you can decide what field you would have neighbors around that you want to avoid what conditions you can apply and, and just simply not be a risk that you have to work on. So I think we've made it through the questions I was hoping to answer today. I'd like to answer any questions that folks online might have for me. I think this is really helpful, Rick. Um, I have a question about standard consultants policies, do they generally look at both nitrogen and phosphorus, or are they still just mostly focusing on nitrogen in their calculation? Uh, we would certainly start with managing for nitrogen, uh, because nitrogen is a compound that's fairly leaky, and if we don't use that nitrogen up here in which we apply it, uh, we're going to lose it to the, uh, to the groundwater. As you were experiencing up at NREC. Yes. So we would start there, but because poultry manures balance between nitrogen and phosphorus, with so much of that nutrient source in that phosphorus side, uh, when we apply to meet something close to a nitrogen need, we're going to over apply phosphorus significantly. And uh, phosphorus, if we have a field, especially one that has a risk of runoff or erosion, uh, that means that phosphorus is going to be contaminating our, our surface water nearby. So we really need to consider both, I think, in the end. And my guess is we're going to apply something near 50% of that nitrogen needs or less. And we might go less as the risk of a field erosion grows in, in And agronomists are becoming more aware of that. I mean, that's the whole intent here, isn't it? They should be, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the case where we do 
find a higher level of nitrates already in the groundwater table, would you advise changing application rates as well on those lands? You know, my recommendation would be that as long as we're giving a reasonable credit to the litter and, and offsetting our fertilizer nitrogen by that credit, uh, I, poultry manure will not be in greater risk than the commercial fertilizer. In fact, there is a fair amount of research that says uh, manures, because of their slow release of nitrogen, have a lower nitrogen risk as long as we're properly crediting it. So I certainly wouldn't say we need to reduce the litter in a region that's higher nitrate. I, I'd say we just need to make sure we're giving it adequate, accurate credit. Okay. Rick, this is Steve. I, when I was in industry, the biggest comment I heard about manure application from several different producers was the fact that it just doesn't get applied uniformly enough. And so sure that nutrients there, but then there's a significant portion of the field that didn't receive any of the litter or the manure. Um, and so we're going to just go with our standard recommendation on fertilizer that we do on every other field, which really concerned me a lot when hearing that, but I heard it several times. Have you got some recommendations on equipment to and procedures for this group that talks about uniformity and the importance of that, and, and uh, can you address that a little bit? Uh, Steve, that's a, an excellent point, and that's one of the reasons we find people still not wanting to credit manure is the lack of uniformity. Uh, that is a challenge for our application equipment. I think it has gotten better over the years, but uh, I, I think especially as you're getting involved with this the first time, you need to go out to a field and, and do some calibration in the spreader and look at the pattern of spread across the width of the spreader. Uh, there's a real good uh, video uh, out of North Carolina State Extension uh, that shows this being done with poultry litter. It would work the same with any manure uh, that shows that distribution pattern how you adjust the equipment to improve that uniformity and how you also overlap on the sides to, to get better uniformity as well. Uh, my suggestion is we should never encourage somebody not to credit the nitrogen in the manure. Uh, we need to work with them to understand the uniformity of that equipment and what they can do to, to get a decent adjustment. And we've got to treat it as a fertilizer. Yeah, I, I fully agree. It was just, that was just, I heard that comment lots of times, you know, talking about it. And, uh, you know, and of course that was applying what I was working with, with liquid manure through center pivots, which, you know, gets around a little bit of that uniformity issue if you don't plug things up. But, uh, but I know you guys have worked with this a lot and I, I figured you had some, some recommendations on how to make sure it's getting applied uniform, but boy, that's gotta be a key point to, to yeah. Keep people that are doing this the first time from getting discouraged with it right uh, right up front. Excellent question. Excellent point, uh, Steve. Talking with uh, two groups here in Nebraska that do a lot of that uh, uh, brokering of manure from feedlots to neighboring crop farms, uh, Sechi Agri Services and uh, Nutrient Advisors. Both of them have 
with their customers and come a long way in getting them to give that value. because they're, they're actually charging those neighboring crop farmers for that manure. And uh, so there's maybe a little bit more incentive there because uh, if they're going to get that value, that cost back, then they've got to credit it. But they've learned that it's possible to do this, but uh, it does take some work. Um, just for added information, I, I have heard that Costco is going to be working with one particular company in applications. So hopefully that person, that company will be professionally trained and working with the crop consultants on a responsible application. Well, and I, I think there's a role for extension even in that discussion today. Uh, I don't think our crop consultants are all that convinced yet as hearing some of the same stories that Steve just repeated. Okay. I think we need to uh, also be involved in these kind of discussions and in really encouraging the accurate crediting of the nitrogen in the manure. With the producers. With the producers and with the consultants. Yeah. And, and if Costco is recommending somebody or for for that project you know to, that's a professional at it that's important and and if, if i don't know who's determining where that manure goes i mean a lot of times with the pig operations it's been the farmer gets that and and whether he wants it or not and, and as it's his responsibility and so i'm not sure with this project is is costco doing something with that or the uh, some leadership from the biz that side of the business or does a farmer just get the product whether he wants it or not kind of thing um, I believe it's a, in most cases, the farmers doing a nutrient management plan to have it applied to their own resources. Yeah. So it's a farmer's product. It's his, it's his responsibility to take. Yeah. That's kind of what I figured is probably yeah. the deal. So, so yeah, there probably is Rick a big, big place there for extension to kind of be a little bit involved in, you know, steering that in the right direction a little bit. And, each of these farmers are being required by Costco to have a nutrient plan. And part of that nutrient plan requires that they document that manure application rate and that credit they give. So it will be an expectation from the DEQ review process. Uh, so I, I think just from that perspective, they stay out of regulatory concerns. They, they need to also be crediting it and accurately uh, placing it. I think it's very important that we work with producer groups and get this information out there in order for us to continue to have expansion and permits pass be given to potential producers. And we certainly don't want to have any, um, I want to say, black eye images out there of misapplication or It, it's good to hear that Costco is going to be working with a contractor that uh, may be moving a lot of the manure. Uh, I, I think uh, Costco's services are to date uh, that they've been providing have been primarily for managing the issues inside the barn with the, the housing and the, the animals. Uh, the manure is generally historically been left up to the producer to make the decisions on. So I think there's a good role for us to play in combination with a somebody that's trained in 
it was experienced, I guess, in, in applying manure, uh, I think that might be a, a good combination for making things happen right. Yeah. And and their manager also said that, you know, three to four years down the road, a producer may decide to buy their own equipment and do their applications themselves. They're not closing that door. That is certainly a possibility. And within the options available long term. They just didn't want all the producers to think they had to go out and get the equipment immediately. So they hired a, con a professional to help with the application. Any other questions for today? Um, you primarily focused on litter material. Do you have much comment on more of a pure manure, such as out of layer operations? That's probably a whole nother set of data and presentation, I would assume, Rick? I think much of what we shared today would be very similar. The biggest difference is the characteristics. Uh, the concentration of nutrients would be different. And so I would have to always want to have a good sample of whatever product the land applying. And uh, we would use some of the same procedures we use for today, but uh, we just need to know what the concentration is. In addition, with these operations, if they do a decaking, that will be a wetter material. It will have a, a lower concentration of nutrients on a per wet pound. And so, we, we, again, we need to have a manure sample of that, and we need to go through the calculations for that individual circumstance determine what's the best rate. Don't use what I shared here as just a, something that works in all situations. That's good, good to know. All right, well, if there are no more questions, we will go ahead and stop recording. And I'm trying to look up here real quick who is next week's presentation. It looks like it's Dr. Reynolds, Healthy Poultry and Disease Monitoring. So we're going to move from waste management issues over to um, health and bird management next week. And I appreciate everybody's participation. Thanks very much.